Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church once again. This is our Sunday School lesson. We're moving headlong into summer. So we're going to do this on uh, June 5th of 2022. And we're continuing in our little series of the miracles of Jesus. And we do that because we want you uh, and all of the people in our classes, first of all, just to have some time to focus upon Christ because he is, of course, our Lord, our Savior, our King. He is matchless. There's no one like him. He's powerful. He's strong. He's loving. He's kind. He's gracious. And the Bible tells us that we are to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And sometimes we get um, distracted, maybe sidetracked a little bit by not only things in the world or things of life, but I think sometimes it's possible even for us in the church to kind of get on to some other things that may be important and they may be even um, something that is biblical and right. But the enemy can use it and our flesh certainly will cooperate to take our eyes off of Jesus. And that's something that just must never, ever happen. And so today we're going to be looking at... Um, something that I've entitled, Christ hath regarded my helpless estate. And you uh, probably recognize that. It's from one of my favorite hymns, It Is Well With My Soul. And uh, in that uh, hymn, there is the line that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5, We'll look at nine verses and we'll get another story about this man who is in a, in a state of helplessness. And along with that goes hopelessness. And I think as you look in this, you're going to see the uh, compassion as well as the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to change this man's life. But you're also going to see that this man really uh, had nothing to do with what happened we might say that he cooperated, but um, I don't know, that, uh, that, that's one of the things where he was in agreement, but there really wasn't anything he could do to cooperate with Jesus. This man, again, was completely helpless on all of this. Our introduction just says, the Bible is very clear about the spiritual deadness of lost humanity. And, and I think when you get into the Calvinism versus Arminianism debate and all of that, I really do think that uh, the idea of spiritual death settles the issue. You see, for you to believe that um, God responds to man, that somehow man cooperates with God, for you theologians, you uh, might want to look up Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, the idea that uh, God and man kind of come together and both play a part in salvation, um, th that doesn't fit with what the scripture teaches. It's a misunderstanding. And um, when you read verses that talk about the deadness of lost humanity, it, it doesn't mean that they're just walking zombies or anything like that. Of course, they live and they love and they laugh and all kinds of things like that. Sometimes they are kind and nice. Sometimes they're as mean as a snake. Um, 
you know, that's the state of, of fallen humanity. But it does mean if they're spiritually dead that their connecting link between themselves and God is broken. It's like the cord has been cut, the cable has been cut. If you uh, took a pair of side cutters and you went to uh, behind your TV where it plugs into the wall, your cable, and you took those side cutters and you cut the cord, what would you get on your TV? Nothing, it would, have, it would not have the ability to hook up to receive the information and uh, give you your sporting event or your TV show. And that's the way it is when Adam sinned, the cord was cut, his connecting, his connection with God <clears throat> was severed and he was dead in trespasses and sins. And he passed on that sin nature, that inability to uh, communicate with God, to understand God, or even the desire to seek after God, well, it was gone. And things just don't make sense to a lost person. They're spiritually dead. Now, again, they still live. They look like us. And in a lot of ways, they act like us. And uh, it, it doesn't mean that they are as bad as they possibly can be. Um, some people get pretty close, as we see in society. I'm thinking about that uh, young man that went into that elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, and uh, shot and killed all of those people there, those little kids as well as teachers. Can it get much worse than that? Maybe we think about a Hitler and his extermination of six million Jews. Can it get much worse than that? Well, when you read in the book of Revelation and in the book of, I believe it's 2 Thessalonians, about what the Bible calls the beast or the antichrist or the man of sin, I, I think we can say, yeah, it could get worse, but boy, they're getting close. They're getting close to it. But not everybody's like that. I'm really glad that uh, I may have a, a neighbor who is lost, but he's not a hell's angel or anything like that. He's a pretty nice guy. And uh, from time to time, he even does some very kind and helpful things. And so we've got to get this doctrine right. It doesn't mean that everybody is uh, at the bottom of the barrel in terms of how they act. It just means they have no human goodness, no righteousness to connect them to God. They have no ability to get into a right relationship of, with God on their own. And the self-righteous always argue with that. They think that they can. There's something that they can do. And this goes all the way from people who are in just flat-out works-based religion, that the best I can do, the better I'm going to be, uh, or even to some so-called Christian denominations that say things like, yes, you've got to admit you're a sinner and you've got to surrender to the Lordship of Christ and trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. And, and here's where the kicker is, you've got to be baptized or you've got to speak in tongues or something like that. And what that does is, for example, if I believed in baptismal regeneration, that it would mean that God has done his part, but until I do my part, nothing can happen. What does that put the emphasis in and who gets the glory out of that? Well, it would be my part. God is helpless until I do my thing. And the doctrine that uh, of total depravity or uh, probably better described as total inability 
total inability, uh, gives the glory and the honor to God, and that's what our spiritual deadness is. We can do nothing that commends us to God, that gets God's attention, nothing that uh, would make us right with God. It's all of Christ. In fact, we see that um, when we think about what the Bible has to say about that, that it's Christ who takes the initiative. It's Christ who does the work. It's Christ who brings us life. Think about um, some familiar verses here, Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We think about Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, unmerited favor, you've been saved. And Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And so this simply means that the total inability to become righteous or acceptable to God, that's what it's speaking of. And so people try religion. You, almost everybody you know is religious to some degree. The whole world is covered in religion of various kind. Um, one person said that religious freedom is the right for every person to go to hell in their own way. Uh, they're all hell bound and they're all separated from God but there is no shortage of religion. Somebody said that man is incurably religious, and that's why we've got to go past religion to a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Religion, charitable deeds, mysticism, things like that, all kinds of things, many other things as well. And um, others just give up and they do whatever feels right. The book of Proverbs 16, verse 25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And Proverbs 12, 5 and 6 says, The thoughts of the righteous are just. They're, they're righteous, in other words. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. It's all a cover-up. It's all a show. And they're even tricked and deceived by it, aren't they? The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And so we see that um, when we get people doing just whatever they think is right, whatever they feel is right, even if they come to the point of utter and absolute hopelessness, like maybe the young man who did the school shooting. We don't know, but maybe he had tried going to camp at a church. Maybe he had tried living a righteous life. Maybe he had been baptized or something like that. But until Christ changes us and until Christ sends his spirit to live within us and until Christ makes us spiritually alive so that we can connect with God, it's all futile and it's all hopeless. And some people, not everybody, but some people get to the point where they quit trusting in anything and anyone, including even themselves, and they say, what's the use? And then they go off the deep end. They begin to drugs and alcohol, maybe suicide, maybe murder. 
any number of things, sexual perversion, all kinds of things. And that's not really an expression of their joy and happiness, but an expression of their hopelessness. And we need to remember that as we look around in this fallen world. Now, however, as we're going to see in this particular story and miracle, Jesus changes everything. And that's kind of the point. So if you've got your Bible open to John chapter five, let's begin reading uh, the first nine verses of this chapter. After this uh, was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He was going to the feast. Now, let me stop there and just say that even though Judaism had degenerated into a religion of works, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, um, emptiness, all of those kind of things. You'll notice, though, that Jesus didn't disassociate from it. In fact, what he was doing was pointing back to Moses and back to what God meant when he instituted all of these um, rituals and things like that that we've seen as we studied the book of Exodus because they had meaning. And they were all pointing ahead to what God was going to do when he sent the Messiah. And so that sacrifice that a Jew might alter in the old days was pointing ahead to the sacrifice that God himself would give on behalf of fallen humanity later on. And Jesus is just bringing life and meaning and calling attention to all of those things. And he was fulfilling the law. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled all of the law of God. He didn't do it away with it, but he completed it. And it's no longer able to condemn those of us who put our trust in Christ because we're trusting in the one who did what we could not do. So there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, verse two, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate. That's mentioned, by the way, in Nehemiah, if you want to look that up. And there is a pool, which is called in Hebrew, uh, Bethesda. Bethesda, okay? We have a, what is that hospital in Washington, D.C. called uh, uh, Bethesda Medical Center, named after this. And it had five porches. And in these lay a great multitude, a mega multitude of sick people. Then it describes them, blind people, lame people, paralyzed people, and they were waiting for the moving of the water. For, and then he describes what they believed and what they were looking for. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Now, we don't know how old the man was. We don't know if this is from birth or not, but 38 years is a long time to be sick. Maybe he contracted it when he was 20. You know, well, at that, if that were the case, then he would be 58 years old. Maybe it was later, maybe it was sooner, we don't really know. But for 38 years, he had this infirmity. Now, when Jesus, verse 6, saw him, and this gives us a clue into his condition, lying there 
and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. So that tells us about his inability and that this was probably some type of uh, paralysis, right? But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Perhaps he had maybe the use of his arms and not his legs. And so he would try to pull himself toward the water when it was troubled, but he couldn't get there fast enough. And remember, according to their tradition in this, or maybe even more superstition, you had to be there first, had to get there first. So this poses a particular problem for a man like this. He just can't get there. And so in verse eight, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. Now we know something's going to happen. And especially it's in Jerusalem and it is at a feast time and there are all kinds of people there for the feast. So they notice this, they hear about this. And that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. You know, they couldn't rejoice that he was healed. They couldn't rejoice at what had happened. They were jealous of Jesus. They wanted to discredit Jesus. And even this man who had been healed by Jesus had to be done away with. He had to be discredited. This is um, a lot like modern day politics, isn't it? If you're not uh, for me, you know, um, then you've got to be destroyed kind of thing. And that's what was going on in this situation. So it's kind of a sad ending there. Um, But I don't know. I kind of get the feeling that this man had been in this condition for so long. And now uh, in his helplessness and hopelessness, he's made well. He probably didn't let it bother him uh, too much. Like I heard one preacher say one time, you don't like what I say? Oh, boy, that bothers me. I'll have to take a half a baby aspirin to get to sleep tonight. And that's probably the way this man was. So let's go into the lesson and let's consider these points. Okay. Number one, this man was beyond the help of rituals. You know, it really didn't matter that there was a feast going on in Jerusalem that day. It didn't do this man any good. I don't know if he participated in those kind of things or not, but I kind of suspect maybe to the degree that he could, he did. Maybe somebody took him there. Maybe, um, you know, there was some way for him to do something and to uh, think and to pray and to meditate. And maybe he had been educated earlier in the synagogue schools. Uh, Who knows? We We don't really know. But we know this, whatever he had done, maybe in his younger days before he got sick, he was able to go to the synagogue, maybe to go to Passover, maybe to do the different things that the Jews did. This feast that Jesus is going to apparently was the feast of feast of Pentecost. And yet none of that did this particular man any good at all, any good at all, because rituals don't save. Rituals don't heal. Rituals don't fix anything because they're simply that they're just a ritual. 
And anything that seems to uh, help with just ritualism, uh, there may be some coincidence there. It may be the work of the enemy. It may be just maybe the gracious work of God that coincides with the ritual. But humanity always has the tendency to put our faith in the ritual instead of in God. Some of you may have come out of a very ritualistic background, a liturgical background, and there's nothing wrong with that if it reflects truth. Um, All of us have a liturgy, even our church does. We have a certain way that we worship and a certain format that we follow, and other people are more rigid in that. When uh, my dad was in the military and we would go to uh, the Protestant service in the chapel, you know, they always kind of went the same way and um, did the same things every single service. Everybody knew how to, how to respond, what to say, what to sing, what to do. It really changed very, very little. The chaplain might pick out a hymn or two that was different, but there were always certain things that we sang. The doxology was in there every single time. The uh, What they called the Gloria Patria, I believe, uh, that was in there all the time. The reciting of the Lord's Prayer was in there every week uh, and the same format all the way through. Now, if that is a reflection of truth and biblical doctrine, good theology, and there's nothing wrong with it until it becomes simply an empty ritual. And what happens so often is there are millions of people that will go to church every week and they'll go through there and they'll hear a a priest say, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. And then they'll take the Eucharist or communion. Okay. And uh, the sad thing is they will think that taking the bread and the wine from the priest, that that ritual is what is going to secure their salvation. And they don't really see the reality of what really saves them and that is personal faith in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he made on the cross, which is symbolized in the Lord's Supper. We must never put our faith in the ritual. Some people, I'm even concerned we have some in our own church, possibly, think that because they go to church, that's what saves them or keeps them saved or helps their salvation. And while I do think it is a good thing, obviously, to go to church and it's a command of God, know this, you can go to hell from a service in Graceway. There are people that could be sitting in our services, singing our songs, listening to our preaching, who could have a heart attack and die and go straight to hell. Uh, This is not, we are not the agent of salvation or the means of salvation. It always is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... This story illustrates how empty rituals really are. Don't put your faith in the rituals. Don't let the rituals bless you when Jesus has far more blessings that he wants to give you. And he wants to give you, he said, abundant life. And we settle for the ritual. We settle for the ceremony. We settle for something that we can do and kind of feel good about it. And we miss the whole point. And that is really the indictment that was 
against the Judaism of Jesus' day, they were doing all of the things that were prescribed in the law, except they did what? They missed the point. It was pointing toward the gospel, pointing toward their sin and the redemption through the shedding of blood that God was going to provide. And they should have been looking ahead to the Messiah and to Jesus, to the cross. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus is going up. And uh, this man is right there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, which means that a lot of these people going into that feast would have no doubt passed by. And for 38 years, that's a lot of Passovers and a lot of Pentecosts and all of those kind of things that go on. But the rituals are powerless and sometimes they distract from the truth. And then bullet point number three, this is the worst thing. They give a false sense of security and a false sense of righteousness. Now, that's why we do this and belabor this. We don't want you or anyone else to get that false sense of security that is inadequate to save them. Okay, number two. This man was beyond the help of superstitions and mystical traditions. You see, this, this idea that if you're by this particular pool... And uh, some historians think uh, that they know which pool this is. And there were certain mineral deposits in it that kind of made the water a, a different color and have a different smell. And uh, the idea was that it was medicinal, that somehow it would help. And then there were also underground springs that would feed it. And from time to time, the waters would be troubled. And Jewish tradition, there's nothing in the Bible that really points to this, but Jewish tradition, superstition would say that the troubling of the water was because an angel came and when it touched the water, if you could be the first one there, first one there, winner take all type of thing, then you would be healed. There's no biblical authority for that. Old or New Testament, that was just something that they came up with, something that they believed. And so uh, superstitions and mystical traditions, well, they didn't help this man at all, did they? They didn't help this man at all because he couldn't get there. He couldn't even get into the water to see if it would happen. Someone always got ahead of him. And uh, so when he was lying there and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, no one knew when the troubling of the water was going to take place. And so they kind of had to be ready. I don't know how close he was to the edge of the pool, but uh, by his own admission, his own testimony, he just never could, never could get there. And he's waiting there and waiting. And uh, I wonder after 38 years, I wonder how much hope he had. You know, there are some people that get involved in some things, Scientology and different things like that. I heard somebody talking about um, Tom Cruise with his, uh, remake of Top Gun, and they were talking about him and uh, Scientology, that type of thing. And I wonder, um, when you enter a cult like that, and you do the things they tell you to do, I'm going to make a guess that when you start off on that, you do it with, with great enthusiasm and joy and hope, and he's given a lot of money to that. Well, I wonder if this man by the pool was like that. Get by the pool. Somebody get me to the pool. I've heard that if you get to the pool and when the angel troubles the waters, that if you can get in the pool, you'll be healed. 
I mean, maybe he had been to doctors and they couldn't help him. He'd been to synagogues and had rabbis pray over him and that didn't help. So we got to try something. And uh, maybe he didn't believe it, but it's worth a try, isn't it? Worth a try. And a lot of people are tied up into those kind of things now. It's just worth a try. You got to do something. And they may try a, a Ouija board or something like that. Uh, occult things. They might try drugs or alcohol. They might try experimental treatments or anything like that. And they go through that thinking that it is going to help them. I wonder how he felt after 38 years. It doesn't sound like when Jesus confronted him that this man had much optimism, much faith, or much hope for anything at all. And like we said in the first point, a lot of people trust in rituals. And a lot of people also are believing superstitions. You'd be amazed how many biblical superstitions there are. How many people read something out of context in the Bible or they hear somebody speak who is supposedly knows the Bible and they tell them something that's completely untruthful, something that is not even in the Bible and yet people assume that it's there. You know, there are a lot of people that believe that... Um, the old saying, every tub must stand on its own bottom is actually in the Bible. There are lots of people that say, and I've heard someone say not too long ago on a podcast, as the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. Well, it's not in there. And there's a lot of superstition that goes on. And we've got to make sure that we weed that stuff out of our mind and out of our thinking and get back to the truth of the scripture. We're not made right with God and we don't walk the Christian life through rituals or through silly superstition. And so um, this thing was based upon some assumptions. The man assumed the water had some sort of power in it. And the truth of the matter is, sadly, it was probably just water. And they assumed that God was doing this and uh, might have been just a natural explanation in it. And when the waters were troubled, that it was some sort of an angel. Might have been, might not have been, probably wasn't. And that people like this man, they were waiting for their chance. If I could just kind of win the lottery, then everything would change for me. And probably all that was going to happen in this is you were going to get wet. And um, if it were valid, then this man had a problem because he couldn't get there anyway. So even if everything about that was true, even if there really was an angel and there was healing power in that water, didn't do this guy any good because he couldn't get there. So when it was all said and done, it really didn't matter, did it? Thirdly, notice that he was on beyond the help of passing time. You know, a lot of people kind of think, well, there's always tomorrow. There's always a new day. Tomorrow's a new day. That's a brilliant statement, isn't it? Tomorrow's a, a new day. And we have hope that it's going to change something. People do this um, on December 31st. Oh, I can't wait till the new year gets here. And then they find out that trouble and problems and situations and disease and all of that, they don't watch the calendar. They carry on and they tend to go with us and our problems go with us. And the passing of time doesn't really change just a whole lot. Maybe some things, but not just a whole lot. And this man was there and it said that he had the infirmity 38 years. I wonder where, as I said earlier, his hope was now. I've got a feeling that he lost hope and his hopelessness 
actually became worse after time. And there are people all around us that are thinking that if I can just do the rituals and the superstition long enough, you know, they may say, well, I don't really have any understanding of the Bible. I don't really have any joy in Jesus. I don't understand why other people get it. Maybe I just don't go to church enough. And maybe if I go enough times long enough, then it'll happen. And sadly, a lot of people have quit because they found out there's no joy in the church. The joy is in Jesus. There's no joy in just simply going through the rituals of worship without Jesus. And that's why people are bored. That's why they don't understand. That's why they're not fed. That's why they don't grow. And like this man, they are hopeless and time doesn't seem to answer the situation. Well, maybe if I could pray for five years instead of just today, then things would be different. Maybe if I could read my Bible every day for a year and go through the Bible and do that for a decade, then I would really have something and they don't understand. It's not in the rituals, it's not in the superstition, and it's not even in the amount of time that we do it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for consistency, and I'm all for discipline, and I'm all for dying to self, and I'm all for doing things over a long period of time because they feed us, and they change us, and they build the right things in us. But without Jesus, folks, it doesn't do any good, doesn't do anything, except you just spent your time. You wasted your time, probably. And number four, notice this, though, that while all of these other things were beyond helping this man, number four, the presence and power of Jesus was sufficient. I mean, this is the Jesus that spoke the, universes, the universe and the galaxies into existence. You know, when we think about the power of angels, you know, in um, the Old Testament, there was a time where uh, almost 200,000 Assyrians were killed by one angel. You know what the book of Hebrews would remind us? Jesus is better. We think about the times when angels would meet with people in the Old Testament uh, particularly. We think about what they would do in the New Testament and, and the way that they would inform people or help people or uh, any of those kind of things. And we're always reminded Jesus is better. Why? He created the angels. He created even the fallen angels. That's why Satan and his demons are no match for Jesus. Jesus is the creator. And when Jesus comes on the scene, this disease, while everything else was powerless, this disease could not stand up to the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that <clears throat> he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. But while I am coming, neither, uh, another steps down before me. This guy still didn't get it, did he? There he is in the presence of the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the creator of the universe. And he still thinks that his power is somehow in the water in something else. And it reminds me of people that say, I believe in Jesus, but I really trust in what I do or in something else added to it. And so Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. 
I want you to notice here that Jesus saw him. This man didn't cry out to Jesus. Jesus saw him and Jesus knew the man's condition, just like he knows yours. Jesus is the one who initiated the conversation. He was more interested in healing this man than the man was in being healed. Jesus knows your situation and uh, he is the one who calls out to us. There is in the Bible a general call, whosoever will may come. And then there is that effectual call when he calls us individually and he gives us life. We are the called in Romans 8, 28. And the most common word in the Greek translated church is ekklesia, which means the called out ones. We hear the voice of Jesus. He comes to us and calls us out. And the man even acknowledged his inability to do anything. I I can't get there. I can't heal myself. I can't help myself. Someone always steps in front of me. I'm a loser. I'm going to die this way. And that's the way we are when we come to the Lord Jesus and we say, I'm a sinner and I'm lost without Christ and I have no hope except the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And I surrender to him as Lord. And you notice that Jesus spoke to him. And that reminds me that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God in Romans 10, 17. And you'll notice that it says very clearly here, the man was healed and then he picked up his bed and walked because he couldn't do it until Jesus actually healed him. It reminds me of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we know that one, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then it goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And even there you see what? Salvation, then the ability to work. Salvation, and then we don't just quit, sit there or go our own way. We go to work. And what do we do? The works that God has assigned us and prepared for us, but we don't get the power to do those things for God until God does that salvation work in us. Okay, so let's wrap this up. This was a true miracle, and it changed this man undeniably. However, it was beyond the understanding of those who were lost. You know, all they could see was, You're taking up your bed on the Sabbath. Who do you think you are? How can you do this? And that's the way lost people are. Don't expect the world to applaud when they see you change because they don't. And so uh, they were critical of him. And so what do we do? Well, we need to see a picture of the power and the love and the grace of Jesus. We need to see a picture of our hopelessness apart from Christ and humanity's misplaced faith. We've also got to see the lostness of people around us and have the compassion toward them of the Lord Jesus Christ and be a witness to them and be kind to them. Uh, That's what the world is looking for and that's what the Bible calls us to do. And uh, Jesus saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. Are you? And that's where we need to be in reaching other people with the gospel of Christ So thank you for taking the time to uh, watch this or listen to it as the case may be. And may the Lord bless you this week. And uh, I pray that your soul has been encouraged and fed as we magnify the Lord. Thank you and God bless you.